When I was a kid, my dad did one of those greased watermelon contests on 4th of July at our local pool. You know the one. They put Crisco or Vaseline all over the watermelon, and then they throw it in the middle of a pool. In this case, a square diving pool that was about 12 feet deep and 30 or 40 feet wide. So the goal is for the contestants to get the watermelon from the center of the pool to the side of the pool. And whichever guy gets the watermelon up on the side of the pool wins the watermelon. I mean, it's probably not worth the watermelon, honestly, but no matter. My dad, in his late 30s, and loving a chance to prove that he still had it, entered the contest along with a few dozen other young bucks. And you can cut the tension with a knife. They're all standing around the edge of the pool, stretching, getting their goggles on, lathering up. I don't really know how all these things work. Then the whistle blows, and all the young athletic guys dive in and race towards the watermelon, clawing, biting, scratching, all but my dad. He is still standing on the side of the pool. We're screaming at him, go, go, go but he's standing there and he's watching. He's watching the other guys and what they do and how they're maneuvering in the pool and how they're beating each other up trying to get this watermelon and stealing it from each other. And then he dives. It wasn't like a shallow dive, it was a deep dive. And I watch as he stealthily swims underneath all those immature watermelon warriors above him. He had the watermelon in his clutches before the 19-year-old with water in his goggles ever knew what happened. He didn't go straight for the side of the pool. He took the watermelon deeper into the water, swam with it, and as the warriors were running out of steam, my dad slam dunked the watermelon on the concrete side of the pool. And he broke the watermelon, um, and watermelon seeds and flesh uh, went everywhere. But he won nonetheless. He won because of patience, unorthodox strategy, grit, and he might have just gotten a little bit lucky. Nonetheless, he was creative and he taught me that the obvious path isn't always the best path to win. Oh hey, welcome to another episode of The Friends We Meet. In this episode, North Carolina writer Scott Blackburn, as he talks about his creative process, and an original song from a North Carolina songwriter who is dear to my heart. But first... Hey, this is Evan. If you like what you're hearing, I'd love to have you consider joining the Patreon team. There's options starting at $3 an episode to be a part of the team. Go to patreon.com slash thefriendswemeet. Thanks. Hey, this is Paul Spring with Birthday Party Rockstar. I offer face painting, balloon twisting, and magic shows for all occasions and all ages. And I have some exciting news. We're now offering foam parties, you know, like bubbles. Imagine having the pool party feel without the pool. Billions of bubbles in your yard. Don't believe us? Count them yourself. We bring our giant foam cannon and our hypoallergenic bubbles for family fun like no other. We bring the bubbles, music, and games, so you just have to sit back and relax. So, become a Rockstar parent today and visit rockstarbubbles.com.
When looking to make healthier choices, we discover that many of the choices that are good for our own personal health, they're also good for the environment, our community, our local economy. It's a virtuous cycle that has a ripple effect, way beyond just that one choice. The Budding Artichoke has a solution for you to buy local. To find out more, visit The Budding Artichoke online. Follow them on Instagram or Facebook. Search The Budding Artichoke. Scott Blackburn is a writer, a teacher, a business owner. He's never shared his writings with his wife. And he's a new dad. He just signed with an agent, and he's working on getting his first novel out. Meet Scott. Can I have your attention for the next five minutes while I read something that I think is terrible? I don't, I don't think I'm better than anybody, but, but I'm also not just sitting here wasting my time. I'm trying to do this for a living, and... And the only way to get to that is to get better. When I first started writing, I tried to imitate the greats, and then I realized that that's not really my voice. So uh, the last few years, I've honestly, I think I finally discovered my voice. I was walking through a bookstore one day, and I saw a novel, and I like covers. I like interesting looking covers. I picked it up, turned it over on the back and I saw, right, this author's from Wilmington and he's in his 30s and he actually studied for a little bit at UNCG, which I just graduated from. So I bought the book and within a few days I was like, you know what, this this guy's in his 30s. He's from North Carolina. He wrote a novel. Maybe I should try to write a novel because I've always liked storytelling. I like watching a lot of movies. I like indie movies and I like the stories they tell. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to write a novel. And I put together, I guess, somewhat of the beginnings of a novel. And I was like, all right, I'm not quite good enough at this yet. Maybe I need to go back to school. So I started looking at MFA programs for writing. It turns out I ended up getting into one where the author, his name's Wiley Cash. That's the, uh, that's the author whose book I picked up that day. And he ended up being my mentor within two years. And uh, he worked with me for about 12 months of my two-year stint at a low residency program in New Hampshire where I'd have to go up there 14 days a year. And so that was that was pretty cool for me. Uh, what are you going to ask if, what I'm good at? What are you good at? I'm good at writing. Yeah? Yeah. You know it? Huh? You know it? Yeah. Okay. How'd you know? Let's say at first I obviously wasn't good. I wasn't terrible. Met a few writers who I greatly respect, and they were like, hey, man, this stuff's pretty good. I was like, really? I was like, that's good to hear. And I've gotten a lot better since then, but it was good to hear that from someone I respect. So if they, they think I've got a little bit of talent here, maybe I should should really, really, really work hard to get better at that and then become good. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think I was good at it. And I think a lot of people in different fields, especially writers, degrade their own stuff. And I don't think there's a place for that. Um, of course, you're going to write terrible paragraphs and terrible sentences. You're going to have terrible characters that you'd get rid of. But overall... You're either good at it or you're not good at it. And the only way to get better is just to keep doing it over and over and over again. My process is um, I'm what they call, in the writing world, they call a pantser. Do you have any idea what that might mean? No clue. <laughs> so it's not a real word. A pantser is someone who flies by the seat of their pants. Okay. A lot of writers, what they do is they have this really intricate plan in place before they start writing. They'll have sticky notes lining a wall. That's not how my brain operates. I get too excited about an idea and I just have to start writing. Mm -hmm. So my process kind of looks like this. I'll have an image. It might be a single image or even a single sentence in my head. And then in my mind, I'm starting to build around that. 
And what I'll do is I'll get my phone out and I'll just type random words into like my notepad or a sentence or just a random idea, like even like a small visceral detail, like, oh, mm. this would be a cool detail to put in a book. Mm. So as far as planning goes, that's about it. The novel I just finished, the planning for it is maybe 30 words in a notepad and that's it. And so I kind of start, the way I started that novel is I wrote a first chapter over and over and over again until I understood who my character was and where he was going. So I kind of let him take over the story. I had some ideas of where it was going, but I did not have it all mapped out. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think most authors do map things out and it serves them well because a pantser like myself can get themselves in trouble if they get too far into something and it just has nowhere good to end. And I do think, you know, in my mind, I do have a little bit of planning going on. I just don't have that traditional setup. Do you ever have to, like, back out of it? I mean, if you're going down one corridor of the story, do you ever have to back out of that corridor? Yeah, I think so. And usually that happens after I've already written it and I already start to like it. And then I realize, does this add to the strength of the overall novel? And if it doesn't, no matter how much work I have to put into it to fix it, then I'll go back and delete it. And whatever, you know, that has a ripple effect. If you delete something on page 30, it's going to have a massive ripple effect by the time you get to page 300. And so I've had to do that with this current um, novel I didn't have to do it a lot, which is rare, and I'm glad. Um, yeah, it, it definitely happens. I don't like doing things by the book. I think that's why I started writing fiction, partly. I was originally a, a documentary and news major, but I felt like with some of that stuff, there was there was no room for creativity. There was no room to just go off on my own tangent. With writing, I can do whatever I want to do as long as it's not terrible. And so I think that's kind of why I became a writer. And I like I like the process of uh, being able to to kind of make my own rules up as I go. Typically, I'm not a person that can sit down and just start writing and something good come of it. What I'll do is I'll is I'll write it in my head about a dozen times just play around with words in my head and then when I sit down I can be very productive I can, I can churn out maybe two or three thousand words um, if it's a really really good writing session otherwise if I sit down and start typing I might spit out 200 words and delete them and then then I'm done for the day because I felt like I, I've accomplished nothing but that's not to say that sitting down sometimes and just typing doesn't help um when I, when I went into to writing school, I had this idea that writer's block was a thing. By the time I was done, I was convinced that writer's block is not a real thing, that you always have something to write. You can go outside and look at a, uh, a building and write about that building, and you're writing something, and something could be spurred by writing uh, something that you did not think was important at all. So you can always write. You can always create. But I typically don't do that. I write when I have purpose, and I do try to write. I don't have a schedule. Um, morning and night, it doesn't matter to me. When I was first starting to write, I would get up in the middle of the night if I had an idea because I'd be afraid I'd lose it, and I would, and I would get out my laptop and start writing. Now it could just happen sporadically throughout the day, uh, typically in the morning a little bit, and then uh, when my wife and baby go to bed at night, sometimes that's a good time to write. So there's no exact plan for me ever. I know plenty of people that have a word count goal every day, and I'm not always sure that that word count ever leads to anything um, on some days, and I just can't do that. Now, of course, I'll, I'll throw around some ideas sometimes just to see what it looks like on a page, but I don't have this, this goal like, all right, 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to write 1,000 words, then I'm going to have lunch, and then I'll write 
500 words between there and bedtime. I know people that do that and that are successful and, and immensely talented, but I did have to figure out how my brain works. I remember when I first started it in my mind, I was like, you know what? It'd be cool if I bought an old typewriter and I started pounding away at the keys. But that that's one of those romantic ideas that long lasting writers usually that that stuff does not typically work um it, it's gimmicky I'm, I'm not saying you can't write a bestseller on a typewriter but it's also one of those things it's like you doing a podcast and just buying all the coolest looking equipment and thinking all right this is gonna make my podcast amazing but that's not that's really not it um so i, I see see i'm just going no, off on a tangent great. here it's great well my wife she's type a Okay. So if you can tell so far in this interview, I am not type A. But I think I needed that structure in my life. The first day I decided I was going to write a novel, I was like, all right, I'm going to commit to this thing and see it to the end, however long that takes. And your mind, when you're starting, you're like, yeah, maybe, maybe in a year I'll be there. And then when you start writing and you start researching the process, um, it's kind of like my friends in music, Nashville, they call it a 10-year town. They think they're about to make it, and it takes about 10 years to even get your foot in the door. And so with writing, that sometimes can also be the case. I don't think it's going to take me 10 years. I'm only about year five right now um, to get to the point where I'm at. But when I started writing, I had this idea in my mind that I never wanted anyone to read my writing until it was available in every bookstore in America because I felt like Tiffany had read a lot of novels at that point, and I don't want to give her anything less than what she's been reading. Because that would, in my mind, that would make her think that I'm less than, than those other writers. Does that make sense? It's kind of a weird, and I don't know any other writers like that. And I know a lot of writers, and they always laugh at me when I say that. But in my mind, why would I give her something that's way less or not near as good as what she's been reading? I want to give her something equal or better. And, and I feel the same with my family. They don't read my stuff. The only people that have ever read my stuff are, are agents and, um, and fellow writers. That idea of her not reading my stuff until it's published helps drive me too, because I'm getting closer. And then, uh, and it'll be cool on that day to be able to hand her a physical, like 300-page book and be like, "All right, here it is. Now you can read it." We'll be right back with Scott. And now a word from one of our Patreon sponsors. Zach is my go-to person for the whole creative process for all of my projects. From the first coaching session where he makes sense of my messy brainstorming, all the way to the final product I'm passionate and proud of, he's the guy. No matter your dream, he will make it a reality and he puts you in charge. Don't go anywhere else. Kaylin Hubbard, Everyday Abundance Podcast. Go to ZachAllisonDesign.com. Zach helped us with our logo here at The Friends We Meet. Thanks, Zach. At the Yellow Chuck Coffee Company, we believe we can bring hope and change with a simple cup of coffee. Coffee is always on us when we serve those who serve our city. Why? Because we're convinced that those selfless men and women could never hear the words thank you enough. So raise a mug and spread the word. We'll be right here in the heart of the brew, serving those who serve our city. Just one cup of gratitude at a time. Will you join us? Follow the truck on Instagram at Yellow Truck Coffee Co.
when I started writing, I guess it was around 2015. So I thought at the time, like if I met an author, they would be like a celebrity. And so when I got into my MFA program and started working with uh, Wiley Cash, he was already a New York Times bestseller. He's a big deal. I mean, he's a great author, um, one of the best in the country, not just the South. I realized really quickly, he's just a dude. He had just had a baby. He's in a very similar situation uh, when I met him a few years back as I am now. Um, he was married in his 30s, um, trying to figure out the dad thing. And he's just a guy. And I worked with a few other authors up there, and they're just people. All right, most of them are just people. Now, of course, there's jerks in every industry, but they're just people. So, And they're not celebrities. A lot of You, you can be a New York Times bestselling author and not have 2,000 followers on, on Twitter, which is bizarre to me. Because yeah. you can be a no-name extra in a TV show and have 20,000 followers in two right. days. It's, it's weird because I'm sitting here thinking like these people are amazing. Like a lot of people aren't reading 250, 300 page books for whatever reason. Um, I'm not necessarily battling any of that. I'm, I'm battling myself on it cause I'll start writing and then my mind will go somewhere else in, in these little increments and I have to refocus myself. But if you do focus on the craft and getting better, it's going to find an audience and it's going to make it out there eventually um, if you put enough hard work into it. Uh, and when it comes time, there will be an audience. One thing that'll keep an author or a writer humble, and I'm not an author yet, let's make that distinction. I'm just a writer, but I'm going to be an author, right? So one thing that'll keep a writer humble is the blank page, all right? Um, I had an author once tell me, I think at that point, he had two very successful books out. And he said, I sat down to write this third one, and he says, I feel that blank page is still terrifying, um, and it'll humble you, um, because you're only as good as, as those next words you put out. Um, I think you mentioned something about humility the other day when we were talking, um, and I started thinking about... Um, when I was at my MFA program, every night we would meet in this like giant, this gaudy looking, I wouldn't call it a banquet hall. It's more like a, uh, I guess you could call it a banquet hall. It's not, it's not a ballroom, but maybe it's a banquet hall where they have like conference. It's a conference room where you can eat food. Okay. That's what it is. Anyways, you can volunteer like five people a night out of like the, I guess, 60 or 70 students can volunteer to read a three minute excerpt at dinner. And this is in front of every student. It's in front of probably five or six New York Times bestselling authors and other very successful short story writers and nonfiction authors. You can volunteer. And my first week there, I was terrified. So I did not volunteer. And by the end of the week, I remember regretting it. And I did the next time. And I was, and I was nervous when I got up there. Um, of course, I mean, I was, I was shaking when I walked up there because all these people, and sometimes there would be agents in the crowd because they would be there as guest uh, speakers and stuff like that. But it, what, what helped me get better, I was talking to a guy named David Simpatico. He wrote High School Musical. He went to school with me. Um, he sat me down one night, and he was like, listen, like when you get up there to read, he's like, just know that your words are important. Um, he's like, don't get up there. And be like, oh, I just wrote this in my room. It's not very good. He said, as soon as you say that, nobody in the audience wants to hear another word you have to say. He's like, why would they want to listen to something that you don't even think is good? 
and and that really helped me. Even if I wasn't 100% sure of what I was going to read, I would get up there with a the confidence. I would make eye contact with the crowd. I'd smile at the crowd, which he also told me to do. That what I was going to say was important. Um, and of course, not everybody's going to like it. But if you get up there and degrade yourself, can I have your attention for the next five minutes while I read something that I think is terrible? That just doesn't do a lot um, for your confidence and it doesn't do much for people's confidence in you. So it's the same way with writing. The page will, the blank page will humble you, but be confident and not cocky about it. I don't, I don't think I'm better than anybody, Mm -hmm. but, but I'm also not just sitting here wasting my time. I'm trying to do this for a living. And, and the only way to get to that is to get better and to be confident myself. So why degrade myself for half my writing process? I remember especially writing my first novel, there were several scenes that I was 100% trying to write a really, really tight scene that was was fun in some way and that would allow me to show off maybe some phrases and words I'd thrown around in my head that, but hey, this is going to look good on the page. But when, when you come to the end, you realize, does this make the novel better or was I just showing off like... Like, hey, I wrote a really good sentence here, and uh, or this scene is really cool. Like, it's got some great images in it. People have to see this because it's cool. Instead of, does this serve the, no- the the purpose of the novel? And in and what they call that in writing with characters is killing your darlings, right? I've never had to kill many darlings as far as characters go, but I have with scenes because I knew that scene was just to serve my uh, my own vanity. And I was like, all right, this doesn't make the novel better. So now, like, I've um, in a scene, I catch myself very quickly. I'm like, man, what am I doing here? This is this is not going to make the, the the final draft of the novel. Um, this is, does not serve any greater purpose. So, do you ever write things that you're going? I have no idea what the composition of of topsoil is. I, I mentioned topsoil in there. Now I've got to go back and like research what is. Um, I write very rural Southern fiction, and I grew up in the rural South, so there's not. A ton I have to research. As far as from my end of things, I don't feel like I get too lost in that. But if I did, I don't think I would enjoy writing. I like to learn new stuff, but I don't want to spend half of my process learning uh, things that'll otherwise never surface again in my life. Like sure. like you said, like what kind of ants are are uh, prevalent in, in this area? But there right. are, there is little stuff. Yeah. I mean, most of the stuff I have to look up. I could Google. And in five seconds, I'd be like, oh, okay, all right. So, yeah, that's where that, that certain tree grows. So if I mention this tree is growing around a mountain, I'm good to go. But, but yeah, I know what you're saying. And I think what gets me excited, <laughs> I like to write stuff that's funny. And I'm not a, my stuff is not necessarily comedic, but it's got some, uh, it's got some humor to it. I like writing dialogue. I love writing dialogue because if you've grown up in, North Carolina, in the in the in rural North Carolina, you have met some interesting people over the years, and you have heard the most amazing phrases thrown around. It's like I always wish the movie Sling Blade had been a novel because I think it's the most brilliantly told story, and I was surprised it was not a novel, and I wish I had written the novel for it. But what makes that so amazing is the dialogue of every single character in that movie is just spot on. Like we all know. 
to a degree, a Carl. We all know uh, Doyle Hargraves. Um, so I love writing dialogue. I think it's so fun, and uh, and it's naturally humorous if, if it's if it's true to the South, in my opinion. Who do you admire as far as dialogue? I like Flannery O'Connor's dialogue, just because I can relate to it. But it's it's usually just these bizarre characters, and so the stuff that comes out of their mouth um, is hilarious. Cormac McCarthy does a good job with it. The problem with him, and I'll probably get shunned for saying this, is sometimes I just want the guy to tell me a story. Like, he makes me laugh sometimes, and he has beautiful imagery, and sometimes I'm 300 pages in, and I'm like, I've, like where am I going? That's not true with all of his novels, but I think most people think a Southern writer should love everything he or William Faulkner right? And they're not in my top 20 authors. I mean, they're just not. When I think dialogue, for me, it usually is a Southern author. And, and that's, I'm only saying that because I can understand it to a, uh, to a level where it's just inherently funny to me. And so I like to see people put these weird characters together and, and what comes out of their mouth is usually pretty brilliant. How did having a baby, let alone a little girl, uh, change your paradigm? <clears throat> So Ruby was kind of the final push to finish this novel. So we found out we were pregnant in, and when I say we, uh, Tiffany was pregnant and I was her husband and it was my baby. (laughs) We, we are, we were pregnant. You had to work through that process in your head. It did happen. You see how it struggled for me to be a writer? We found out we were having a baby in June and I probably had 40,000 words of what I knew was going to be a novel I would finish. I think it finished around 70. Right now it's sitting around 70. But a lot needed to be worked through. It's kind of weird. Out of everybody that tries to just complete a novel, less than 5% complete one. And out of that 5%, I would say less than 10% ever get an agent. And out of that 10%, I would say <laughs> like... I, a small amount of them actually get a book deal. So, I mean, you're going in with the odds stacked against you, but I'd kind of been through the process. So what do you wish that you knew uh, 15 years ago? About what? <laughs> Life. Well, one, about everything, but about, two, about this, about your process, about... Um, I think what I wish I knew 15 years ago, and I think this applies... Again, I didn't write back then, and I didn't teach back then, but I think what I, what I wish I knew when I started those things like years back is that there is no set way to reach your goals. There's no exact path you have to follow. And with somebody whose brain kind of works in kind of an odd way like mine, um, and I'm not, again, I'm not organized. Um, in many ways, I'm not organized at all. That you can put your own touch on everything you do, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in your writing process or your novel itself, the way you parent, everything. You don't have to follow a formula. You don't have to fit a niche. You don't have to fit a specific genre. And I wish I could go back and tell myself like that, hey, just be you and work hard and the rest is going to work out um, the way you want it to. I hope. So, last uh, question on this line. You're going to be published. You're going to be found in the local bookstore, whichever version of the bookstore exists in 5, 10, 20 years. Um, At what age do you let Ruby read your stuff? Oh, wow. She's going to have to be... (laughs) 
She's going to have to be an almost adult because it's gritty. It's dark at times. So it's, 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 I'm not writing children's books or YA. So she's going to have to wait. But I'm sure she's going to sneak into my office one day. Hopefully I'll have a couple novels out by then. And then she's going to start reading it. And hope, hopefully she's not offended by it or, uh, or thinks her dad's crazy. But, yeah, it's going to be a while if I have anything to say about it. I thought that was a good question. Hey, thanks, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Up next, we have a song that I wrote for my wife about the moment that we met. But first, Letterpress is something that I stumbled upon during my junior year in college. And from the moment that it was introduced to me, I was captivated. I was captivated not only by the end result of this printing method, but also by the beautiful antique machinery that I get to work with. I think in this day of digital media, Letterpress is a printing method that brings back printing as an art form. Hey everyone, my name is Kinsey and my small business is Printology Press. We are purveyors of fine design and goods with our specialty being the art of letterpress printing. The printing we do is done on a 150 year old printing press with either handmade or cotton papers so that an impression is pressed into the paper during printing. This is what sets letterpress apart and why so many people choose this printing method for their business cards, stationery, or wedding invitations. You've heard me talk about letterpress, but you have to see what I'm talking about. So follow us on Instagram at Printology Press or look us up on Facebook. We would love to connect with you. Here's a song that I wrote about the conversation I had when I first met my wife. It was just a little conversation Just a little conversation I knew it would change the world No these days are not at all Thousands of we still looking forward It's just a little conversation Suspecting, didn't know we were innocent, didn't know what we hadn't seen. It was just a little conversation with you. Wouldn't go back to the bathroom, wouldn't go back to have seen Wouldn't go back there, back there The little seed of love has turned into a tree And all these days have added up and we're still looking forward 
Thanks to ZJ Cunningham and Brett Thompson for joining me on that song. Thanks to our Patreon team and sponsors. Go visit us at patreon.com slash thefriendswemeet to find out more. Thanks to Scott Blackburn for our conversation and 83 Coffee for hosting us. Be creative, friends. See you next time. This has been a Human People production. <laughs>